Well, again, uh, good morning, C4. Again, we're just so glad that you're here on this almost spring day. We're almost there, right? Everyone, we're close. We're really close. Uh, we can sort of feel it. Uh, again, uh, if you're joining us for the first time, we're so glad uh, that you are also joining us this morning. If you're joining us online, we want to welcome you too. If you had a Bible this morning, physically, virtually, we're good either way. Could you turn to Joshua chapter 2? Uh, we're in week three in this series called On the Brink. And this mini-series, as I've been saying, we're asking a series of significant questions that relate directly to the season that this church is in, in this time period. And the questions we are asking is this, what are the lessons we as this church, we together as the people of God must see and must learn and watch out for as we move into what God has promised this local church, other churches in our region, and the region itself? The question we are asking is, what happens as we first step into what God has already given us as a community? See, this March series is not about asking God for unique promptings or promises for our church. This series is not us preparing for God's coming unique move. This series is about believing and obeying God in the initial significant days of God's larger move among us that he's been preparing this church for over many years. So like I said at the beginning, the month of March, we're looking at the life of Joshua to see and also be warned and to be encouraged to keep following God in this more unusual season in our church experience. Simply put, we are on the brink of what God has already been doing, and now we're on the brink of a fuller move of God and God's promises to us. And since this larger move is coming, the question is before us, here it is, will we step in together. Now last week, if you were with us or here online, we ended with God speaking to Joshua. And God gave a very strong and direct promise or group of promises to Joshua. And he also gave very direct commands to Joshua to get going. Like I reminded us, Joshua has been waiting 40 years for this day. And actually what they're about to do as they are about to literally step into the promised land, this has been 600 years in the making. God made a man, met a man named Abram. He changed his name to Abraham. And he said to Abraham, I am going to give you this land you are in, which he took him to. It's the land that they're now on the brink of. And he said, your descendants will be here. They'll be as numerous as the stars. And now 600 years later, Joshua and his people get to actually experience the promises of God. Now Moses, Joshua's best friend, his leader, his mentor, has just died. And God has now come and said, I will give you everything I promised to Moses. Not even the mighty city, not even the most organized army, not even the most entrenched people will be able to stand against me, that's God, and you. He said in Joshua chapter 1 verse 3, I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. In verse 5 he said, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. So the promise is affirmed. The command is given. We know, like we found it last week, that this is the worst time that God, in God's providence, chooses to send them in because the Jordan is flooding. And so as a reader, my expectation in this unfolding story would be 
that they would go and 1.3 million people would try crossing a flooded Jordan River to go into the promised land. But suddenly it's like the movie stops. God's story takes an unbelievably interesting twist. The story narrows down to a secret reconnaissance mission, a spy story, a cloak and dagger, James Bond event before the promise is ever touched. Joshua 2 verse 1 reads like this. Hear the word of God. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. Now, 40 years earlier, don't forget, Joshua was in this job. He was a spy. Twelve were sent in by Moses. They all came back. They said the land was unbelievable. Caleb and Joshua, as spies, said, we can do this. God is with you and us. The ten spies said, not on your life. And 40 years was wasted. Now, Joshua sends two more spies in. Now, if you've been with us since the beginning of the story, you might be thinking, wow. Like Joshua, you've got a real problem. You have a major trust issue. Go see a counselor. Don't you believe God is with you? Like he's right there. Do you have to like double, 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 triple check that maybe possibly God is going to be with you after all these promises? No, don't read it that way because that's not what's happening here. This is not lack of faith. This is what we talked about in week one. This is excellent organizational and military planning. He is a trusted leader, he's prudent, he's wise, and he's a good follower of process. See, once God speaks, see, it's prompting and planning. It's how we function here. Once supernaturally God gives promises, it's evaluated through leadership in scripture, then the planning begins. And so Joshua sends in two spies. And we all go, okay, fine, so good, all right. But then another twist. Immediately, we move from like a PG film to a triple X film all in one verse. So the spies go into the land and they go into Jericho. Jericho is this unbelievably strong, fortified city right at the mouth of the promised land. They have to go through this to win this battle. And they go in and it says in verse 2, So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Hey-o. Okay, so they move from the presence of God's leader... To a sex trade worker's house. Now, her name is Rahab. You may not know this. Her name literally means open, wide, and pride. No, that's why it's written. Now, the woman is either the only prostitute in the house, or many scholars believe maybe she's a madam over a whole house. Now, both are real possibilities. So these two spies, locally, most likely young adult age or a little bit older, are sent and they go into her house. Now, this makes sense from a spy perspective. Why? Because this house would be visited by men night after night, people from within the city and also from without the city. So if I was going to hide somewhere, they go, okay, where would I, this make sense? This will be sort of less intrusive. But as I was studying this week, much more comes to light when you read it in Hebrew. And you say the Bible is boring. Okay. The word enter and the word stayed in Hebrew can mean enter or stayed, but much of the time in the Bible actually mean to have sex. So I'm reading this for the first time. My Sunday school life is falling apart. And it sounds like they're mixing business with pleasure. That they're obeying God and sinning at the same time. Now, honestly, it's unclear in the language. I'm not bringing this up for shock value. I'm just saying this is where the text goes. And so we have spies, an invasion, God's promises, a prostitute, and two men. Now, as this is unfolding, it seems very unclear where this is going to go. And then like a really good spy film, things actually get worse right at the beginning of the mission. 
in this very high stakes event, as this cloak and dagger mission is just starting, they get exposed immediately. In the middle of this whole city-state that is on high alert because they have been watching over a million people just across the Jordan and they know they're coming for them, someone sees these two men. And it says in verse 2, the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent a message to Rahab, bring out these men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. Now, the tension must have been very high for, 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 for both sides. Forty years ago was the last time that Israelites had really, truly been in the land, and now they're here. The invasion is coming, and the king wants to get these two people. Why? He wants to torture them. He wants to find out from these two spies what Joshua's next move is. And then there's Rahab. I'm sure her life is hanging in the balance. She's already probably distrusted by her profession. She's on the fringes of society, maybe tolerated, but probably despised. And, and we all know this. It doesn't matter what country you live in, in every time period, if you welcome, support, or harbor the enemy, you become the enemy too. So soldiers or messengers come, and they pound on the door, and she opens it, and they have not come as customers this day. But they've come from two people that appear as clients but are so much more. So what would happen? Is this a setup from the beginning? Is actually Rahab working with the king? Is she going to freak out and say, my life isn't worth this, so I'm going to give over these two men and the king can do what he wants? No, verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, well, yes, the men came to me. And I did not know where they came from. And at dusk, when it was time for the, the city gate to be closed, they left. And I don't know which, they, which way they went. So go after them quickly. Maybe you can catch up with them. Yes, she basically says, they were here. And I don't know who they were. They were satisfied customers, and now they've left. And it's dusk, and, and I think they probably walked right out the, the city gates of our great city. If you hurry, maybe you can go catch them. Now, don't forget, in the middle of lying... In the middle of shadows, in the middle of sexual innuendo and human intrigue, God is working. So where are the men? Well, verse 6 tells us where they are. See, what she did is she actually hid them on her roof. And she hid them, it says, under stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. Flax, like wheat or other things, was a normal annual crop in this region. And so she was probably drying it on her roof. Roofs were flat. And so these guys are probably under pounds and pounds of stalks of flax. And they're wondering if they're about to die. Well, the story she spins so far works. She hides them under her produce section upstairs. Now think about it. If the messengers or soldiers had come into the house and searched the house, they would have been found and tortured and Rahab as well. But Rahab, being a brilliant woman, uses her job and uses her reputation and uses their presumptions about her and her home to win the day. So off they go on this wild goose chase out the city gates. And it says in verse 7, So the men went to pursue the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Uh-oh, new problem. Now the spies are actually locked in the most fortified city in the promised land. So what do you do? They can't escape. They're locked in there. There's nowhere to go. Well, I suppose they decide to go to sleep. What else do you do? Before they close their eyes, can you imagine it as they're looking up now inside enemy territory, as the stars are coming out, surrounded by their camouflage of flax, Rahab walks up on the roof. And at this moment, the conversation that begins to ensue 
is not only significant to this story, it is significant to history, it's significant to every one of us sitting here today. It says, before the spies laid down that night, she went up on the roof and she said to them, verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us. So that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. I know God's already done this. This is a done deal. Listen, we can put this out of our mind. We can resist you. We can resent you. We can fortify. We can all come together as one people. We can build bigger walls. We can find better weapons. We can even get all the people we don't like back together. But let me tell you, I know that I know that I know that I know that ultimately God, that your God has given my house, your God has given my life, your God has given my city, your God has given this whole land to you, and we are done for. This is like psychological warfare directed by heaven itself. Dread, she's basically saying, is now upon not only me and the city, but the whole land. The truth and presence of the almighty God has come, but it is not love and peace that he is bringing. It is God himself, his presence, his ultimate power that has now come upon his enemies. And his presence has gone ahead of his own people, causing dread and fear. And the people that have given their allegiance and lives to idols and demons behind them are now being broken by heaven itself. See, God is literally eroding their confidence, and he is doing the opposite of what he's doing with Joshua. He comes to Joshua and says, be strong and courageous, I'm with you. He comes to these people and says, Say, I am not with you. I'm against you. You are not strong. You are weak. And I'm going to destroy your courage. Can you imagine God showing up and it not being the time of grace? So now she says, your God has come and we are done. The motif behind this is called God as warrior. All through the Old and New Testament, God is seen as God as warrior. He fights for his people and he cannot be stopped. 43 years earlier, Moses had stood as God's representative to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh would not let God's people go, and Moses warned and said, my God is coming, he is a great warrior, you must submit. No, I will not, he said. So multiple plagues come, and if you read the story carefully, every single plague that God gave through Moses to the Egyptians was an assault on each key deity in Egypt. It was spiritual warfare 101. Who is the greater God, Yahweh or our God. Moses throws down his staff. It becomes a snake. Remember, Pharaoh laughs and says, no problem, boys, you do that too. Two snakes. But who ate their snakes? Our God did. And so now, Moses, after the exodus happens, breaks out in this unbelievable worship song. And as he breaks out, it's recorded in scripture in Exodus 15, and he prophesies what this woman is now saying. Exodus 15, 2, the Lord is my strength and my defense. Remember, they're singing this after 430 years of slavery has just been broken. He's become my salvation. I love that. He has now become my salvation. He is my God. I will praise him. My Father's God. I will exalt him. The Lord is what? Say it loud. Warrior. The Lord is his name. It says in verse 12, you stretched out your hands and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you've redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear, here it is, and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. Here it is. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon all of them. And then he says that you will plant your people. 
See, behind this is one name of God. We know God by his many names. And the name that we sing so much in this church and use so casually is the Lord Almighty. It's used 285 times in the Bible. And just so you know, it's a military title. It is the God of angel armies. God Almighty, the key warrior of all warriors, has now come to deal with the forces that inspire other nations against his people. Now Rahab says, not only has your presence come, but your presence has been vindicated by action. Rahab starts recounting recent history. Verse 10, these grand moves of God, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. We, we heard about that and, and, and what you did in Shion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan. You completely destroyed them. We, we, we know that your people are now settled there. And then she affirms it once again. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord noticed this. Your God is God in heaven above and earth below. This woman who is on the fringes of society, this prostitute, confesses more than anyone in her whole community is willing to do. But notice, she is not confessing this is her God yet. She says this spot to the spies, this is your God, not my God. But this shows a progression in faith. See, watch this. She lives in a world of spirits and deities and gods, both invented and real. She lives in a world, in a pantheon of Baal and Mott and, and all sorts of other deities. And she is not a strict monotheist. She believes in multiple deities. But she declares that in that great council of gods, there is now one who is the ultimate God, the God who is above all gods. She now says, there are many gods, but your God, oh, your God, stands above them all because he rules all the heavens above and the earth below. My deities are true, but yours, oh, yours is under, is above all others. Then she says, now please, you swear to me, you swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. You give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters, all who belong to them, that you will save us from death. She, she's not playing. She knows what's coming. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. And if you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. See, this is done. So then she does something. Verse 15, so she let them down by a rope through the window. For the house she lived in was part of the city wall. And she said to them, you go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. You hide yourselves there for three days until they return and then you go on your way. Her house was either built right beside or actually built into the fortified walls. And her advice was, go run to this parched desert area. Many scholars believe this becomes the very place where Jesus is tempted by Lucifer later. Now, it's interesting, I don't know this, I'm not a Hebrew expert at all, but the word hope and the word rope, or the word cord, almost look and sound exactly the same. See, there's a word play here. See, this is what it's saying. It's full of induendo. As she is letting them down with this cord, this cord symbolizes salvation and hope. It is the vehicle of their salvation and hope. But notice this. As they are now literally climbing down the wall by a rope, they are now what? Completely exposed. See, if she changed her mind right now, she could yell, guards, right there, and they'd die. And at this moment, as they are completely exposed, as they are walking down this rope, down the wall, one of the spies must have stopped, trained at mountain equipment co-op or something, profound athletes, and looks up at her 
And she looks down, and they remind her, this oath you've made with us, swear will not, sorry, the oath you made with us, swear will not be binding on us unless we enter the land, and you tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you've let us down. And unless you bring your father and mother and brothers and all the family into your house, if any one of them goes outside, the blood is on their head. And we will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, the blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell anyone what we're doing, we will be released from this oath you made us swear. You've got to bring your family, Rahab, into your house. And what you need to do is you need to take this scarlet cord, the one that we're literally walking down, and you need to hang it outside of the window So when the invasion comes and God comes with all his might and wrath, we will be able to distinguish you from every other person. It is your responsibility, Rahab, to save your family. It is your responsibility, Rahab, to symbolize this. See, this cord, which is now our act and our vehicle of salvation, now will become the sign of your salvation and also your whole family. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in that window. If you read farther down, it says the spies did make it back. They were able to cross the Jordan. They meet Joshua. They report everything that had happened to Joshua. And they basically said, the Lord is with us. They're melting in front of us. Let's get going. Now, I always ask the question, whatever happens to the person? Because as we're going to find out in the next two weeks, does Jericho fall? Yes, it does. Are the people obliterated? Yes, they are. I mean, all of this takes place. So what happened? Did this work or was she just a pawn in the spies game? Oh, no. See, this little act changes history. If you turn to Joshua chapter 6, it says that when the invasion takes place, God spared that whole family. And it says the two spies that were in that house literally went up and they got the family out. And it says when Joshua was being written down, the book of Joshua, it still actually says later in verse 25 and 26, she is still living among us today. So this woman is spared. Her family is spared. Everything that God promised and his people who represented God promised takes place. But there's more. Some of you know it. See, this woman is decided by God to be part of his most significant move. Again, remember what we've been learning? Joshua in Greek is whose name? Anyone? Jesus. And we've been seeing that this whole story is a foreshadow of what is coming for the whole world. Jesus is the better Joshua. Our salvation in Jesus is the better promised land. And I love this. And this sex trade worker, this prostitute, this non-Jew, this separated person from God's people, this person who did not grow up or know God, whose life was a living moral contradiction to God's moral will, who worshipped idols and demons her whole life and was paid for sex, she by faith, she by trust says, I will say yes to this God and no to other gods. I will say yes to God's people and even say no to my people and I will save my family now under that God's name. And then it happened. She was chosen by God to build and produce the genealogy and the line of the better Joshua named Jesus. See, if you read Matthew chapter 1, throw it up. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. 
the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Skip down. Selman was the father of Boaz, whose mother was what? Everyone say it. Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Uh, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Are you joking me? You're telling me that there's a prostitute in God the Father's plan that produces Jesus the Son? Yes, of course. Why? Because Jesus is coming for the whole world. See, this is what I love about this. That this woman by faith had no clue that her line... Isn't this amazing? We studied Ruth as a church, right? Remember Boaz? This righteous, unbelievable man, this huge landholder. His mom's the prostitute. And this woman who joins the people of God, her life has changed and God forgives her and she's changed. And she grows up this unbelievable, honorable young man who becomes a great leader who marries Ruth. Ruth, who's a Moabite, who doesn't worship God either. She also is now included. Not only is it powerful, if you read Hebrews 11, which is sort of like the hall of fame in the Bible. It's like the baseball hall of fame, but way more significant. Right? All the big players are here. Rahab is put together with Moses and David and others. Hebrews 11, by faith the people passed through the Red Sea on the, on the dry land, and when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell after the army marched around it for seven days. By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. See that word disobedient? It means they were not persuaded by truth. Not only that, Jesus' half-brother James who thought he was crazy at the beginning and then became the first significant leader of our movement. He uses Rahab as a demonstration to the church of what it looks like when you have real faith because real faith produces works. If there's no evidence of Jesus being in your life, you don't know him. James 2.25, in the same way was it not even Rahab the prostitute? Wasn't she considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent others in a different direction? As the body without spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Rahab is the great sign of what it means to live an honest, beautiful Christian life. The church fathers, the first 500 years of our movement, pointed to this symbol, the scarlet cord, and said to the church, Do you not see? Do you not see the typology and the allegory? It's no mistake it was scarlet. For the very vehicle of hope and the very vehicle of salvation would, of course, find its full fulfillment in Jesus dying and his blood being spilled. And he becomes the cord we put out and he becomes the cord we climb up and we are saved. Rahab was considered an image for the church for 500 years because she was faithful to God and she was the one who invited her family. And she didn't have to, but she chose to. She invited them in and into her family and into God's family just like the church does today. Now the question is, we're gathered here at the end of March break, and as we are searching the Lord, because we believe God speaks fresh things weekly, is what is he saying to our church in this season? And what do we learn from this story? Well, first of all, before I even speak to C4 as a whole church, I need to say, some of you today are Rahab. Like you are here today physically or watching online or listening or maybe years from now you'll listen to this message. But you are Rahab. And God by this moment in this sovereign place is asking you by faith and trust to trust in the better Joshua, Jesus, whom she helped give to the world. Today God is asking you to put the red cord out and be saved from your sin and saved from death. Every death is guaranteed. We're all going to face it. 
to be saved from the devil whether you believe in him or not, and separation between you and God. The Bible says at this moment you are under the coming wrath of God because you have walked away like we all have. But today, this could be the day of salvation. This could be the day that you are moved from separation to salvation, from outside of God's people to inside of God's people, from undercoming wrath to forgiveness. All Rahab did was said, have mercy. She was not saved by what she did. She was saved by who she called upon. This moment is so significant for some of you because God is going to ask you to put out the cord and say to Jesus, come and save me. And if you trust in him today, you will not only yourself be saved, your family and friends will start coming to the God you're about to meet and you have no clue, listen closely, you will have no clue what will happen in the generations to come because of your decision today. You're sitting here and going, but I'm not even a Christian yet. Let me tell you, when God calls you and you put this cord out, he not only changes you, your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren are going to do things for God you can't even imagine yet. And I love when I read, as one woman wrote, God loved Rahab and he loves you. He knew what was going on in her life. And he was able to do something about her life. God did not keep Rahab, by the way, from losing her home. She lost it. God did not prevent her from having to see the Israelites march around for seven days and her city fall apart. She didn't know the plan, but she did step out in faith. He met her there. She trusted in God and he rescued her, her family, because he's love. God, by the way, listen closely, did not judge her by her, by her outward appearance. He did not judge her by her outward lifestyle. God sees the heart. And he not only saw that she was truly seeking, but he saw that she wanted life. And he forgave her. And gave her a new future. And she chose to trust in him, she writes, rather than fear. Here's the good news of great joy that is proclaimed by every Christian on earth. God forgives our past. How significant it doesn't matter. God forgives our past and gives us a new future. What will you do this morning? Whether you've grown up in church your whole life or not, what will you do? Will you be persuaded or will you be like the people of Jericho and be unpersuaded? Paul wrote this in Romans 10.9, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be what? Everyone say it loud. Saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the moment where you have been brought by God to say yes to him. And no to you. Yes to him and no to your history. Yes to him and, and no to trusting in anything else except him. This is the moment where God has decided to encounter you. And so before I speak to our whole church and what Jesus is trying to say to our church, I'm going to stop right now. Church, pray for people who are wrestling with this decision. Heaven and hell are being wrestled right now. And if this is you... Just pray this prayer in your heart. Just do it right now. If you know this is you, because you'll, you'll know it's you, say, Lord Jesus, I did not expect this today. But I am Rahab. I've lived my life prostituting myself to everything except you. I've lived, and you can name it. Maybe it's sex or money or power, education. Maybe you've trusted in other gods or yourself. You just say, Lord, forgive me. 
I turn from that life and I now put out a red cord. And I say, save me, Jesus. I confess that I believe you. And I believe you're Lord. And I believe you died for me. And you were risen from the dead. And that you'll save me just like you saved Rahab. I give up my family. I love them, but I give them up for you as a greater thing. I give up my sin. I give up everything I value. And say, Lord, save me and do what you want now in me. I ask this in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. If you prayed that, I just want to say at the end of the service, meet one of us as pastors because you've literally just moved from death to life and a new journey has begun for you and it's significant that we help you. Now for the rest of us as a church, let me say these words. What are we learning in this season? Because remember, this series is about us asking the question seasonally, what are we supposed to be watching out for as genuine corporate revival seems to be evidenced more and more among us? Well, here's the first thing. And it's very significant as we pray. As we are praying not only for personal renewal and corporate revival in our church, we're also asking for awakening. That is, God would move so powerfully in Durham that thousands would meet him and meet his son Jesus and be changed. As we are, please, please, no, no, everyone look at me for a moment. Don't get distracted. As we are praying for God's move across this region that befuddles sociologists and will confuse families, the first thing today we learn of this passage is that we must ask God himself to show up in such power by his presence in Durham that the enemy's hold and power and work begins to broken up, get broken up even before we step in. I want you to notice this. Even before Joshua's whole army moved in, God was already dealing with all the enemies and breaking them down. This is so unbelievably important for us today. You're saying, well, John, I, I don't understand. Well, help me understand. Okay, here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking this church and anyone watching online who belongs to another church in the region to start asking God to show up so strongly by his presence in the region that all those who oppose him will begin to flee or melt before him. And so when we show up, the resistance will be broken because this is God's fight anyway. Now, who's our enemy? People? Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. I love it. We're getting a little Pentecostal. Mm, just a little, mm, right. All right. White hanky out. Okay, so, now catch this. We as Christians sometimes want to make the enemy people who disagree with us politically. Or people who have a different view on, on a thousand. No, no, no. There is one enemy and his name is Satan. People are not our enemy. Our God has come to save the people we disagree with and us. We learned it in the, last, in the last series, Ephesians 6.12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against people. It's against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What have we also learned? 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot, they do not have the ability at all to see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You say, John, what are you asking? Here it is. Oh, church, go before God the Father and say, come in such palpable power in the region that principalities, powers, rulers, and authorities, and the things that blind our friends, neighbors, and strangers would start to lose grip and ground. So every time a Christian shows up, they say, I'm ready to meet him. This is asking for a supernatural invasion in the heavenlies even before we step up and step out. Now, this is not you taking on it. Don't be stupid. This is above your pay grade. Don't you go rebuking. No, sit down. 
Let God deal with the things that he needs to deal with. See, this is what you've all been wondering. What is he going to do? Okay. Fire. All the kids are like, yes. Oh, of course, Danny. Okay. Now, I want, I want you to see this. This is very important this morning. If it's going to light. It was faith, everyone. Faith. There was. It was working. Anyone got a lighter? Admit. Come on. Oh, go. Oh, nice. Nice. All right. Now, I want you to see this. This is Durham. No, it really is. Spiritually frozen and dead. This is our friends and our neighbors. This is what spiritually our region looks like. It is broken. It is frozen. It is unable to respond to God. Why? Because it is in the grip of an enemy that has been fighting God since Genesis chapter 3. And this is God's presence. This is his powerful presence. And we're literally starting to ask God to come in such power that everything that stands in the way just starts melting. It can't handle it. It just cannot handle the presence of God. And the more and more God comes, the more and more it begins to melt and it begins to cut through. See, this is what most churches never ever really get serious about. Praying before the battle. And yet we need to ask God, who is like a blowtorch, to begin to cut through. And it's going to take time. But as we do this, by the way, I'm not planning to melt this whole thing 400 years later. I just want to say this. As we begin to do this, things begin to melt. And as they melt, people get unfrozen because the forces that are holding them are removed. But this is what we need. We can't produce this as people. This is God himself. And as people pray and invite the Holy Spirit, and as we begin to say, oh God, we admit that we're too self-sufficient and we need the presence of God, we need you to go ahead and begin to undo this ice block. God is going to answer that prayer. The question is, will you do it? This is reality, whether you believe it or not. And as we're praying for an awakening, it is going to take God himself to supernaturally soften up the ground in a way no program could ever do. All we get to do is say, oh Lord, God Almighty, God of heavenly armies, God who loves all the people who are frozen, won't you now come? You know, I asked you to do this as a pastor, but my suspicion is most of you go, that's a nice idea, and forget. I'm really asking you, go home this week. With this image in your mind and start saying, oh Lord, God of heaven and earth, begin to melt the region. Begin to deal with the enemy. Because as he does this, great things will happen. Here's the second thing. There are cords all over the region already. Rahab was already thinking and struggling and wondering and searching. Long before the spies came, there are all sorts of cords. Be encouraged this morning. This is what I'm trying to see. Be encouraged. Don't you know that God is preparing Rahab's? When you go to Starbucks, she's there. When you're picking up kids at the gym, he's there. Don't you know that in the everyday rhythms of life, God is preparing because he has promised revival and awakening. He is preparing many, many people. And whether they are saying our God is their God yet, which is irrelevant at this moment, he is preparing them and the ropes are starting to come out the window. Here's the prayer for the church. Oh God, open my eyes so I can see the rope. 
God doesn't start a move without preparing the ground and dealing with the enemy. And God does not start preparing a move without preparing the hearts he's going to call. Remember how significant this is. That before Joshua put one foot in the promised land, God was preparing the ground. Here's the last thing and I'm done. One great difficulty we're going to face as real revival continues to sweep in our church and others. It's going to be pride. It's going to be pride. And I want to remind every one of us that every one of us used to be Rahab too. So I want to say this. We worshipped other gods. We worshipped sex, money, power, fame. Some of us worshipped actual, literal other gods. Some of us were atheists or agnostics and we uplifted science or humanism above God. We were under the just wrath of God. We didn't know about God. We were not part of God's people. Some of us were deeply Christian in the ethnic sense, but we did not know him. Our lives were open and wide to everything evil. We were prideful. We thought we could run our lives without God. Or we invented a God that suited us. But then every one of us, whether we were 3 or 12 or it happened last week, put out a cord and said, Jesus, be my cord. And what did he do? Church, say it. What did he do? He saved us. Raise your hand if you had mercy this morning. No, really. This is us. But I remind you, as God comes in great power and many more people come to Jesus, I remind you, there is no room in the church for arrogance and pride because we all were Rahab too. Ephesians 2.12, remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenant of God's promises, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Or even more explicit in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know? Do you not know that evildoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Don't play games. Neither the sexual immoral or adult, uh, idolaters or adulterers or men who have sex with men or thieves or, or the greedy or drunkards or slanders or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of us, what? Were. But now you've been washed and sanctified and you've been justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We used to be these things. That's not saying we don't struggle with this stuff. Of course we struggle with this stuff. But we don't stand up to God anymore and say, this is fine and I'm right and I can do anything I want. We go, no. We now realize that's not from our side anymore. The Lordship of Jesus is greater than our rights. The Lordship of Jesus is greater than our struggles. We've been sanctified and washed and we now live in a new kingdom under a new master who's love and joy and peace and patience. But here's my point. As God moves, don't you know how many Rahabs are going to walk through those front doors and the side doors and when they come, let not one of us have our nose up and go, what are you doing here? We welcome everyone because we used to be Rahab and we need to have them all here. Every single person. Because I and we as a church are asking for something that we have not seen in Durham's history and we have not seen in Toronto's history and we have not seen in Ontario's history. We are saying, oh God, we want a real, historic, genuine revival where Christians love Jesus more than themselves, where people are reconciled and thousands meet Jesus, but it takes sovereignty. So we're saying, oh sovereign Lord, oh sovereign Lord, how long we've heard of your fame in days gone by. In this day, Lord, in this day, may you do this again. This is the prayer we have in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand and worship.